0: There's an ancient Chinese story about an old farmer who lived out in the provinces. He farmed a little area of land. He had a son, he had a horse. He was considered very fortunate because he had a son and he had a horse and he could farm his land. He could help farm the land his neighbors he was considered particularly prosperous and quite fortunate then one day his horse ran away he couldn't farm his own land he couldn't farm his neighbor's land very unfortunate a few days after that his horse came back with another horse, a wild one now he had two horses, he had a son and two horses, and his farm. He could again plow his land and plow his neighbor's lands. How fortunate he was! About a week later, his son started to train that wild horse. He was trying to break the horse in, and in the process, was thrown by the horse, and he broke his leg. How unfortunate! He couldn't have his son to help him. Very unfortunate. Little time after that, the emperor of China came through with his armies off to fight the barbarians. And as they went through all the villages, they were conscripting all the young men to be in the army. But they couldn't take his son because his son had broken his leg. Oh, how fortunate he was. How fortunate, how unfortunate. Mostly, that's the way we view our life. You know, we take each situation that happens to us, as Don Juan said in the books by Carlos Castaneda, we generally take situations and events either as a blessing or as a curse, instead of seeing each situation as a challenge. How many times in the course of today's practice have you been either fortunate or unfortunate? (laughs) I was sitting without knee pain. Oh, how fortunate. (laughs) My back is killing me. Oh, how unfortunate. And it illustrates a fundamental principle of the meditation practice. And that is that it's not so much what it is that's happening that's important but rather our relationship to what's happening. It's not what it is that's happening that's important but our relationship to what's happening. Mostly we get involved in a commentary or a judgment or an evaluation of the content of our experience and we neglect to look at our attitude or relationship to it. And that's really where the key to understanding is. There are some mind states which arise in the mind and lend themselves particularly well to the fortunate-unfortunate syndrome. The Buddha singled these mind states out as being particularly important to understand and to investigate because they're mind states which are both very common. They're common patterns of conditioning in us. They're very seductive in that we easily become identified with them. And they're a difficulty in our lives because they hinder a clear insight or a clear seeing. And He called these five mind states, he called them the five hindrances. They hinder concentration, they hinder developing a penetrating insight, But they're hindrances only for as long as we don't understand them. It's possible to transmute their energy, to transform their energy into a very penetrating understanding of the nature of the mind, of the nature of our conditioning. Tonight I'd like to talk about these five hindrances so that we can come to some understanding of how they operate in the mind and also how it's possible to work with them. The first of them is desire, the wanting mind. In some ways this is the most important quality of mind to understand because it's desire which drives us in our lives. Wanting pleasant sight or pleasant sound or pleasant sensations pleasant thought, pleasant tastes, pleasant emotions. We're driven to go for, to grasp, to cling to that which is pleasant. Why is that a problem? Why is this wanting mind or desiring mind a problem? It's a problem because it's a setup for suffering. That is, we think that our happiness lies in the fulfillment of our desires. And yet, if we observe our own experience, not necessarily simply believing something because it's in the books or somebody says it, but to look to our own experience of which we've had ample opportunity to do it, For each of you does the fulfillment of desire bring happiness? Does it bring completion? How many desires have we fulfilled in our lives? Endless, endless. We keep reaching out for more, thinking that in the next one happiness will will be complete. There's another Nasruddin story is a story of his for everything. He was in the marketplace one day and he bought a bushel of hot chili peppers because they were on sale. He had this big bushel of hot chili peppers and he starts eating them. He eats and he eats and he eats. His mouth is burning, his mouth is on fire, he keeps on eating and his friends say to him, why do you keep on eating them? And he looks at them with tremendous surprise he says, I keep waiting for a sweet one. <laughs> we do just the same thing. We keep reaching out you know, for just the next sense pleasure as if we're going to find one that actually does it for us. What's important to understand about desire and sense pleasures is that there's absolutely nothing wrong with the experience of pleasure. In our lives as human beings, we come into contact with pleasant objects, with unpleasant objects. There's no problem in that. But rather it's that compulsive desire or reaching out or attachment to the sense pleasures which causes suffering in our lives. How does it cause suffering? What's it's so interesting to really investigate carefully and closely what this factor, what this mind state of desire is like, how does it operate in our minds? Have you noticed the difference between doing the walking meditation when you're walking back and forth and just lifting, moving, placing? and when you're walking, even somewhat mindfully, towards lunch. (laughs) Have you noticed the difference? I've seen it in myself so often. In going back and forth, everything is really settled back, and in the lifting, there's just lifting, and in the moving forward, there's just the moving forward, and there's that real sense of balance. In walking towards lunch, you you can have that sense very tangibly, it's like of being pulled forward by the desire, by the destination, by, well, by what we want. When desire is in the mind, that desire reaches out toward the object and in the reaching out, pulls us off balance. There's a tension. I mean, and you can see it in terms of our posture, of how our bodily energy manifests. When we are pulled forward, out of the moment, by desire for some object it takes a fair amount of strain to kind of maintain that forward inclination without falling flat. It's an off-balance it's a tense situation. So that the state itself, the experience itself of desire is not one of balance because we're being pulled out of the moment Desire also, or the wanting mind, reinforces the sense that the moment is not complete, that somehow we're not complete in ourselves, and that we need something outside of the moment to come to that place of wholeness. That understanding keeps us on this wheel of samsara, because we keep reaching out for some object, and it can be a physical sense object, it can be reaching out for a mind state, can be reaching out for an emotion, something which is not present. We reach out for it, we either get it or we don't get it. It changes, the situation changes, And again we reach out for something else. And then that changes and disappears and we reach out again. And it's this constant process of reaching which doesn't allow for the settling back into the state of wholeness that's always here all the time. But we're deluded, we're fooled, we're seduced by the force of desire, by the force of wanting. What is it that you never want? What is it that nobody ever wants? You don't want what you have. I mean the wanting is quite extraneous because we already have it. Can you sense the freedom and the balance and the poise and the openness which comes from Settling back into the fullness of the experience of each moment. To look at desire in another way, what is it that we do want? When the wanting mind is strong, what is it wanting? Another sight, another sound, another taste another smell, a different sensation in the body, another thought. That's what it comes down to. We already have sight, sound, smell, taste, sensations. We have plenty of thoughts, plenty of emotions. But we think that the next one is going to be more substantial, more fulfilling, more complete. Now when people come to retreat it's a fairly restrained environment there's not much opportunity to indulge or to go for sense desires to gratify the wanting mind and yet the mind finds ways There's the famous Vipassana Romance. People come to retreat and do their practice, watching the breath, eyes downcast, and walking very slowly, and yet somehow manage to scope out the entire room (laughs) and find that one or several people that are attractive to them. And I don't know that you yet have had, but probably will have if you haven't, some sittings in which the mind creates this fantastic scenario <laughs> you know, of meeting that person and talking to them, maybe going for a walk in the desert together, <laughs> getting into a relationship, getting married. <laughs> having kids. At that same retreat where I kept taking the two pieces of toast, I planned a wedding up and uh, including the whole guest list. And it's just that mind, the mind reaching out the mind wanting, the mind desiring, it's such a powerful force in our lives. It's extremely valuable and important to examine it and investigate it when it arises in the mind because it so much drives us in our lives. It's as if we're pulled by our desires and our society has so strongly conditioned us in that regard. The media and the advertising is just a constant reinforcement. Is the one Salem cigarette advertisement in which there's this beautiful woman and a handsome man in front of a Hawaiian waterfall everything is fantastically beautiful. Nirvana, perfection. And the caption is, I don't let anything stand in the way of my pleasure. Mm -hmm. And that's the message that we keep getting, that somehow if we can just gratify all our wanting, all our desires, all the pleasure-seeking, that will bring That will bring wholeness. That will bring happiness. It doesn't take too much reflection for each of us to see that that's inaccurate. It's not true. It doesn't work. We've tried it. Haven't you? So to begin to look at desire, to look at the wanting mind, to see, to come to that understanding that actually we are already complete. The wholeness is here and the only thing that is preventing us from seeing it, from understanding it, is the seduction, is the fact that we identify with the wanting mind, we get caught by it. The wanting mind is a habit. It's a deeply conditioned, habituated pattern of mind. And in itself it's no problem if we're able to see it and be aware of it. But because the mindfulness is often not so strong, over and over again we get caught up in it. And in the getting caught up in desire, we lose that sense of balance. We lose that sense of the wholeness and completeness of each present moment's experience. A desire is the first of the hindrances or difficult energies, seductive energies that arise in the mind. The second of them is aversion. Aversion covers the whole range of judgment, mild irritation, annoyance, anger, hatred, violence, fear. All those attitudes of mind or qualities of mind which dislike the situation, dislike the experience, dislike the object, striking against it or condemning it. It's fairly easy to see that that quality of mind is itself painful. Now when there's, when there's strong hatred or fear or anger in the mind, it's a boiling. It's a strong, powerful energy that's unpleasant. Some people are quite familiar with the experience of strong aversion, judgment of fear. works strongly in their lives. Other people may feel that It's not particularly a strong factor. What's interesting to look at is how very often aversion to a situation is what fuels desire. In other words, what's underneath the desire for something, the reaching out, may be an aversion to the present situation. As an experiment, either for the rest of this evening or tomorrow. Pay careful attention and investigate why it is that you do anything. (coughs) Why do you brush your teeth? Why do you go to the bathroom? Why do you eat? Why do you move? You'll see that a good part of the day is spent acting out of an aversion to something that's uncomfortable. There's an uncomfortable feeling, an uncomfortable sensation. Why can't we come in and sit down and sit, not move? After some time it gets painful. Now, One time in my practice I was so fed up with the discomfort in the body. But I was very committed to continuing the practice, so I decided that I'm gonna get into a position in which there's no pain. And I got this thick foam mattress and I laid out flat, you know, on my back. Nothing was crossed, nothing was bent. And I just lay there totally flat And it was fine for about maybe 40 minutes. And then slowly, you know, the discomfort started to arise. And I lay there and I lay there and it got more and more intense. And it was such a good lesson in the fact that there's a discomfort at times inherent in this body, in the mind. It's part of what it means to be alive. And you can try to arrange things to be as comfortable as possible, but it really, the practice is really coming to a true relationship to that discomfort, rather than trying to arrange it so it doesn't, doesn't appear. Because even in What appeared to be that very comfortable position, after a while I was faced with the very strong pain. Aversion. It's as interesting as desire in its own way. Mostly we put the responsibility for our feeling aversion or anger or irritation or annoyance on the situation outside ourselves. We think that if only the situation were different, then this aversion wouldn't be here. I don't know whether it's come up in this retreat because the situation is different than at some other retreat centers. But what happens very often you're doing the walking meditation and you're walking very slowly and carefully really microscopically attentive you know, to the sensation of movement and somebody comes walking by really quickly and the mind starts getting irritated. You know, here's this person clomping along insensitive and trying to meditate and starts getting worked up with that kind of judgment and irritation. Maybe 20 minutes later, you may be on line for food or to go to the bathroom or trying to get out the door and somebody's going very slowly (laughs) and carefully and the mind is, boy, what are they showing off for? Can't Can't they move a little quicker? The situation doesn't have much to do with it because the mind can take any situation and create a judgment, create create aversion. There's the, something analogous to the Vipassana Romance. It's called the Vipassana Vendetta. <laughs> Where there's one person in this group who you just can't stand. You don't like the way they walk. You don't like the way they sit. You don't like the way they dress. You don't like the way they eat. And every time you see them, the mind gets filled with irritation and judgment. You haven't said a word to them. The mind. Working with judgment out of the aversion, the aversion feeds so much judgment in the mind, a very common, very common pattern. And it's important to learn how to work with the judging mind because it's so easy to either get caught up in it and to really feed it in that way or to condemn it. Now every time a judgment comes, to feel angry that the mind is still judging, which, of course, just feeds it in that way. Fear is another kind of aversion. What's your relationship to the emotion, to the feeling of fear? There are times in the practice, either because of exploring what's unknown, or some memory comes up, or some anticipation, something happens which makes fear arise in the mind, in the body. What's your relationship to that fear? Can you be with it? Can you love it? Can you open to it? Or is there a closing down? Is there a contraction? Is there a pulling away? One important understanding in the meditative path is the understanding that there is nothing outside of the practice. There is no experience, no object, no situation, no event, no mind state which is outside the field of awareness, which gives a tremendous power to the mindfulness. because it extends it in a very total, universal way. What we're trying to do is to come to a totality of understanding of ourselves. And no matter what you experience, whether the mind is filled with desire and wanting, or filled with aversion or judgment or fear, or is calm and concentrated, whatever it is that's arising, that becomes the food for the practice. That becomes what it is that we investigate in that moment. In that sense, it's possible It's possible very much to relax back into whatever's happening. You don't have to have a program of expectation of what should be happening for the meditation to be going correctly. That's immaterial, that has no bearing on the quality of the awareness, of the attention. And as much can be learned from an investigation of the hindrances, from a real investigation and attention, as can be learned from an hour of sitting very calmly and collectedly. But it has to do with the quality of our awareness, quality of our attention to our experience. There's desire, there's aversion. The third of the hindrances, and one that many of you have mentioned, is that of sleepiness or drowsiness. And it's a strange phenomenon that happens at retreat. And mostly in our lives, we get a certain number of hours of sleep and we feel fine in the day. People come to a retreat, get the same number of hours of sleep, and come into the hall and sit down and kind of an immediate dullness and heaviness and drowsiness and sleepiness. What's that about? What actually is going on? One of the things that you can learn from the sleepiness and from this whole experience is that in our lives, mostly we are fed by the energy of stimulation. There's a lot of stimulation in our lives from other people, from talking, from conversation, from activity, from working, from sensory input. You come here and a lot of that stimulation is removed. It's moving slowly, there's no interpersonal contact. And so there's an an initial sense of, it's like a withdrawal syndrome. The stimulation that we're used to, that we're used to run on, is no longer here. And so there's a kind of inward collapse. And the body gets heavy and the mind gets dull and sleepy. But what happens is that as we go through that, and it's a process that people go through, we go through that sleepiness and drowsiness until we settle back into ourselves and we connect with this mind-body as an energy system. What this is, it's a... It's a collection or a system of energy that's very powerful. But mostly we're removed from it, we're disconnected from it, and we're dependent upon the energy that comes from outside stimulation. The withdrawal from that, the going through the sleepiness and drowsiness, until we settle into this, to the energy that we are, then suddenly the whole process is reversed. And instead of feeling drowsy and dull and heavy, you begin to You come out the other end and begin to feel more and more alert and awake. What happens very commonly for people as a retreat goes on is after the initial sleepiness they begin to feel much less need for sleep. So the hours of sleep go down. Six hours, five hours, four hours, three hours. People get so energized by the dropping into the moment, to the momentary experience this is a wonderful sense of alertness and wakefulness that's not dependent on outside input, but rather it comes or is born from our own inner connectedness. So beginning to understand the dynamics of sleepiness and dullness. In the Buddhists have the Buddhist terminology, they have a wonderful phrase for this mind state, uh, this hindrance. It's called sloth and torpor. <laughs> I don't know that any of you are familiar with the animal, the three-toed sloth. I was once reading a book on, on natural history and it described the sloth and it just hangs you know, from a branch the days on end it doesn't move and about once a week it may come down off the tree and if it's lucky it meets another sloth and the sloth line continues <laughs> it's said that the sloth hanging by the tree you could shoot a gun you know just by it and there won't be any response <laughs> There's not too much known about sloths, actually. Because people get very impatient. Very hard to observe. That's the quality, that's why it's called slothfulness. There are ways to work with it, which I'll talk about briefly. There's desire, the wanting mind, the reaching out. There's aversion or judgment or fear, which is the pushing away. There's the slothfulness or tiredness, which is the dullness of mind. The fourth of the hindrances is restlessness and agitation, restlessness and worry. It's a difficult state, it's a very difficult energy. Have you had the experience of sitting and just feeling that you're going to jump out of your skin? <laughs> that you just cannot contain that agitated energy. It's important to learn how to work with that because if we don't understand how to it can be a very great hindrance to our practice. Often it's connected with either aversion or desire. There may be some something going on that we don't want to look at, that's unpleasant. And out of the resistance to seeing what's unpleasant, the mind produces this agitation. And likewise with desire, sometimes if there's a strong desire in the mind and we don't see a way of fulfilling it or gratifying it, it again creates a kind of agitation. Restlessness. Also to look at worry. Some people have a strong conditioning to worry about things. Worrying about things that are past, already finished, worrying about things that haven't happened. Have you had the experience yet of sitting in a meditation, creating a whole fantasy of what might happen and then getting worried about it? The mind has an amazing capacity to create these situations, these energies. There's desire, there's aversion, there's sleepiness, there's restlessness and worry. The last of the hindrances, and the one that perhaps is the most incapacitating, is that of doubt. And doubt takes many forms. It can take the form of doubt about the practice. You know, you look around and people are moving very slowly like zombies. You know, and they're not looking at anybody, and they're not talking to anybody. And it's weird. <laughs> it's really strange. And the mind starts creating all kinds of, what's going
1: on here, you know? <laughs>
0: they're brainwashing me. <laughs> there's doubt about the practice, there's doubt about oneself. You know, even if you kind of get a sense that the practice might be valuable, I can't do it, it's too hard. You know, everybody else is doing okay, but my knee hurts and my mind is wandering and I can't settle down and I can't concentrate. And all these kind of self-doubts, doubts doubts about one's ability to actually do the practice. Doubt about the teachers, you know, who are these guys anyway? (laughs) Where'd they come from? And it's just the mind spinning out through the form of doubt ways not to be present, not to be looking, not to be investigating. And if we keep buying into it and feeding the doubt, it becomes impossible to actually explore what's going on. We get lost in the story of doubt. Sometimes these hindrances come one by one. No desire, or aversion, or sleepiness, restlessness, or doubt. Sometimes people experience multiple hindrance attacks. (laughs) You know, and they all seem to come together. How to work with them? You're sitting and there's strong desire in the mind. Strong wanting. There's the same basic way of dealing with all of them. And that is to make the mind state the object of attention. So when desire is there, that is an invitation to you to investigate the nature of desire, to investigate the nature of the wanting mind. What does it feel like? And what's the energy like? Using the mental note as a way of both recognizing it and staying balanced behind it. Desire, desire, desire. Really seeing it carefully. What's important is that we don't add to the awareness a judgment. And that's very common. You may be filled with the wanting mind, filled with desire, seeing it and then judging it, thinking that your bed or it's bad or it shouldn't be there, that's extra. Just bear attention, bear awareness on the fact that that energy is going on and see what it's like, see how it's operating feel the quality of it. Another way of playing with desire and of learning about it is to undertake some disciplines of restraint. The Buddha talked a lot about the restraint of the senses. Mostly when we hear the word restraint what we hear is suppression. When we think of restraint, and we think of getting all tight and suppressed and pushed down. That's not what the word means, or at least in the way I'm using it, was used in the texts. Restraint means the ability to say no to a desire. That every desire that comes along, it's like, some image that comes to mind is like, These desires come through the mind, and each one of them has a little hook, you know, with some bait on it. The bait of, you know, a second banana or the Vipassana romance, whatever. And the desire comes through, and the tendency is just to bite on the hook, to go for it. Restraint means not biting, just letting the desire come and pass through and go. Do you see the freedom? in that power of restraint. Instead of being compelled or pushed or forced by the habit of reaching out and grabbing, of wanting, we develop the power and the strength to see the desire come. It's not suppressing it, it's not pushing it down, it's simply letting it arise, seeing it, letting it pass away. There's a tremendous sense of openness and freedom in that kind of restraint. one way to experiment and explore that if you want, and there are many, you can, you can each choose to work with restraint in whatever way seems appropriate to you. In a very traditional way, um, and it's a way that's followed at many of the monasteries and retreat centers in Asia, is the undertaking of some additional precepts the one that I'm thinking of in particular being not to take any solid food after the noon meal. Not to give up the peanuts, whatever served here. Just to, to undertake that restraining activity. If you choose to experiment with that, and again, see whether it's something you want to do. It's, you shouldn't do it because you think that you should because that's just going to create a tension. But if it's coming from a place of wanting to explore, or wanting to investigate it, it's a very interesting thing to do because there is some kind of active restraint that's necessary and there's a slight feeling, you know, when everybody else is going for their fruit and tea, of emptiness or hunger, slight hunger. But what you can learn is that you are no less happy than if you go for it. That your happiness does not depend on the gratification of desire. That's a very important lesson to learn because we are so conditioned to feel that that is exactly where our happiness depends or our happiness lies. You know, in the gratification of one desire after the other. And just to take something very simple and fundamental like food, say, okay, I'm not going to go for that. And to see that it doesn't affect the quality of your happiness at all. They're totally unrelated things. And you begin to see that we have the power in us, we have the strength. And we can cultivate that strength to say no to the mind when it's reaching out. It has to be done with a, with a great care and delicacy so the no doesn't become a judgment. So the no is not, is not done with aversion because then it's just creating more difficulty. It's really saying no to the mind with a smile. No, I'm not going to do that. Working with that in some way, in whatever way you choose to, I think you'll find very valuable and very strengthening. So it's to pay attention to desire, to be mindful of it, to see how it comes and goes, and to feel what the energy of it is like, so that there comes to be a real understanding of how it operates in our mind. Exactly the same way with aversion, with irritation, with judgment, with annoyance, with anger. It's to open to the experience of it. What's the feeling of anger like? Most of the time we get so caught in the story of the anger, in the content of it, of what this person did, and we get lost in the story that in a very basic way we're disconnected from the actual experience of it. We're not fully aware, we're not open to the intensity of the energy because we're so lost in the story, in the script about it. So when aversion arises in the mind, or irritation, or anger, it's like like the example of the person walking by fast, or the person walking by slow, we can be taken outside of ourselves as if the situation is responsible for the particular emotion and get so lost in the situation that we don't pay attention to what's going on in ourselves. Whenever that happens, To see that difference, to see the difference between the story and the experience and to come back to the actual feeling that's going on. One of the benefits, the side benefits, of actually getting in touch with the feeling of anger or aversion or irritation, is that you won't be sleepy. It's a very intense Intense energy. It's sometimes it's felt like being outside, you know, in a, in a big thunderstorm. Where, you know the intensity of what that feels like? When there's strong anger in the body and mind, you can feel it so intently. To open to it without buying into it, without identifying with it. It's just another part of the passing show. It's like this energy system of our mind and body is continually transforming and changing and transmuting. And it's a fantastic show. The practice is to open to it, to allow all of these experiences to arise and to be there and to pass away without getting caught by it, without identifying with our experience as being I, as being self, without getting caught in the storyline. Working with desire, working with aversion or anger. If you have a strong judging mind, if there's a lot of judgment through the day, there are two things that you can do to work with it. One is to be very attentive to your attitude about the judgment. Because what's feeding the judging? What's feeding it is either a buying into it and identifying with it or a condemning. And more likely than not, you'll see that it's the condemning. The judgment comes through the mind, boy, that person is dumb. And then immediately the mind reacts to that. Oh, I shouldn't be thinking that. And there's a kind of tightness and a condemning and a judgment about the judging. There's no way out of that because your very attitude is what's reinforcing the judging process. When judgment arises in the mind, look very carefully at the attitude. See how you're relating to it. Can you relate to it as if it's saying, the sky is blue? Boy, that person is stupid. The sky is blue. Because when you can relate to it in that way, you'll see that the judgment comes and goes and it's no problem. It's just a thought passing through. There's no charge. There's no problem. There's no hook on it. For those of you who have mastered the art of judging, (laughs) what I would suggest is that you spend one day counting them. Just every time a judgment comes into the mind, keep count. Judgment one, judgment two, judgment 533, (laughs) judgment 3000. See how many judgments you make in the day. By the end of the day, your attitude towards them will have changed.
1: <laughs>
0: and see, uh, what we're doing here is this really careful investigation and exploration of the nature of the mind and body, dealing with the physical sensations and the whole range of them, and dealing with all the subtleties of the mind, of all the conditioned patterns of wanting, of craving, of desire of judging, of fear, of anger, of irritation, of happiness, of joy, of rapture. The whole range of our experience is there to be examined, is there to be explored. Sleepiness, how to work with it when it comes. As I mentioned, I think the first day, a very skillful way is to go precisely into the sensation of it. So that, so that we're not lost in the idea of being sleepy, which just reinforces it, but we're actually looking at what the experience, very accurately and precisely, what that experience is. And often in that precise investigation, you see the sleepiness dissolve. I had another experience with sleepiness, the a way of re- relating to it, which proved to be very helpful. I was doing one retreat with a teacher from India, a woman teacher. Many of you may have met, her name is Deepa Ma. And she was very insistent that I cut way down on sleep in my practice, to sleep like three hours, not to lie down during the day. And it was very hard. I, mean, I just was just really feeling tired and sleepy all day. But she said something that was very helpful to me. She said, if you go to sleep when you're sitting, never mind. Just don't lie down and don't sleep more than the three hours. But if you sleep when you're sitting, it's okay. And that giving of permission changed the whole relationship I had to the feeling of sleepiness. And what I noticed then was that when sleepiness came, because of the attachment to the feeling of wakefulness and the aversion towards the feeling of being sleepy. And I didn't like it, it was unpleasant, that kind of heaviness and dullness. So I was caught in this struggle and I was fighting against the sleepiness and struggling against it, which of course just made me more tired. As soon as the permission was given, and if you fall asleep never mind, you know, when you're sitting, I relaxed into the feeling that it was okay. It was okay even to go to sleep. In that relaxing into the feeling, there was no more struggle, there was no more conflict. Actually, didn't go to sleep at all. Got into that very nice state, you know, perhaps you're familiar, just before you go to sleep. When you're not asleep, but the whole system relaxes and it's very soft and very quiet. By not fighting, by changing the attitude towards the feeling of sleepiness, the whole, the whole experience changed. So you can look at it in that way too. See what your relationship to that feeling is. Are you fighting? Are you struggling? Are you relaxing into it? restlessness and doubt, the same thing. Pay attention. When restlessness comes, when doubt comes, be aware. It's just another mind state to be attentive to. One particularly helpful suggestion for working with restlessness, there's a lot of emphasis on moment-to-moment precision and accuracy. And often the mind, there's there's an effort to be microscopic in your awareness. Sometimes that's not appropriate because sometimes the energy is so big, so strong, that trying to be microscopic doesn't encompass it. So often when you're feeling restless or agitated, you have to change the lens of your mind. Change it from a zoom lens to a wide-angle lens. It's like, it's very difficult to stay attentive to your breath if an elephant walks into the room. It's like something bigger is happening. (laughs) It's very hard to stay focused microscopically if the energy that's going on in you is more predominant, is wider, is bigger, is more expansive. If you expand your mind to include it, just open up the whole system, restless, restless, feel the whole thing, then you can get balanced behind that whole energy. With doubt, pay attention. See it as the doubting mind, a doubting tape, rather than getting lost in the content. You'll see that that too is impermanent, impersonal, coming and going. These are the five hindrances: of desire, wanting, aversion, anger, fear, judging. That whole category which dislikes or condemns the situation, sleepiness. Restlessness and doubt. Through the practice, it's possible to transmute them from being hindrances into sources of wisdom and insight. Maybe we'll take just a few questions, since the talk was a bit longer than I had planned. Um,
1: I find that there are times when when my body is really feeling tired. I've been through an enormous emotional strain or something, and my mind also then wants to go and pressure me or push me into, pay attention now, pay attention, because I'm so, you know, lax that way normally. And I'm not real clear on what the boundaries are there. In other words, when you know, when I should push myself and when I shouldn't. If I'm really, if the body's really tired,
0: Okay, okay. That just there is the point where I think you're going off. And that is, when the body's really... What's happening? Uh, for the interpretation... St- when the body's really tired, is that the body's really tired. I mean, that becomes the object of your way. So in other words, it's not that and try to force the mind to be at something else. You're going to be in conflict with what's happening. Something happening which is very, being really tired, and you're the mind to meditation. That very state is vision. And so you're behind that of the body being tired. up. Right? And when you're that as the object of your awareness, in that place of balance, you're somatic coming from sensations. There has to be of what's actually... Was that clear to you?
1: Yeah, I think what, what I struggle with a lot of times it is just fooling myself as the body. You know.
0: One way to... There's one guy when you fall comfortable encouraging you to be at the forward edge of your effort. And it's not the effort to get anything. It's the effort to be attentive to what's happening. Right? You'll know. You can you can sit and walk and sit and walk until you absolutely cannot do it anymore. And you'll know. There's no, there's no doubt at that point. If there's a doubt, keep going.
1: <laughs> How do you ever decide what to do if everything can be seen as the mind state? I mean... You know, I don't understand what to do next. How do you decide what you're going to do? You know, what, where to stay, when to leave, how to go. It gets difficult. You know. <laughs> <laughs> are I mean, going back and back and back and seeing the context and the context and the context. How do you move?
0: Your assignment. <laughs> is to pay attention to why you do anything. Take a look. It's a very good question. It's an extremely valuable question. Pay attention. Find out. And it's very interesting. What you'll find out will be very illuminating.
1: Could you repeat that again? I
0: I said, if you want to find out why you do something, look very carefully at why you do something. And as a particular assignment to actually do it. In other words, you sit here until you are extremely clear about why you're standing up. So that there's no doubt in your mind about why you're doing it. And go through a day like that where you're really paying close attention to what's behind a movement, what's behind the decision, you will learn a lot about the patterns of conditioning. It's a a very helpful exercise to do. You may all be here all night. (laughs) Okay. One last question. What about those times when there seems to be no energy to be aware of? go for a walk sometimes um, go and even to go for a more relaxed walk you know, because sometimes the energy gets so in the effort you know to be really attentive and mindful and noticing sometimes the energy gets too tight it's like tightening the strings of the guitar too much. And it's not properly balanced, and so you get really tired and just feel it's like the energy gets flat. Right? At that time it's important to recognize that and to loosen up a little bit. The energy is there. Right? It's just that it's the system has gotten so tight, right, that it's not accessible. So you have to relax, you have to you have to take some space. This is a fantastic place to do it. And you go for a relaxed walk in the desert. Not not totally spacing out, but just without that kind of striving mind to be attentive. And as you relax into that, you'll see that the energy begins to arise again. And sometimes it's true that you might also get into a state where you're just really exhausted and you have to sleep and you have to rest. That's fine. At that time you do that. But more often than not, it has to do with your balance of mind or your relationship to what's actually happening. Okay, there are a couple of announcements. Um, One is that there's going to be an option. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma
1: Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.